This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNXRadio.com studios in L.A. with the latest on the coronavirus pandemic, as always. Today, America's leading voice in the fight against the virus is with us again, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. You know him by now. We'll talk to him about where this pandemic is headed and also, of course, about the president's recent criticism against him and other scientists. We'll also look ahead to the winter surge in cases already getting started, it looks like. And if you need a job, there's a major drugstore chain that's hiring as we deal with the virus and the upcoming flu season. But we begin with Dr. Anthony Fauci. I spoke with him along with Charles Feldman. Thank you for uh, coming back with us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. You know, uh, we uh, were intending to just spend our time together talking about the really important stuff like the virus and how we are going to do a recovery and what the next few months are going to look like. But the president, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, sort of uh, added to our discussion. So uh, let me read you what he said so our listeners understand what we're about to talk about with you. I'm sure you've heard it. But this morning on a conference call, the president said the following. He said, people are tired of COVID. I have these huge rallies. People are saying, whatever, just leave us alone. They're tired of it. People are tired of hearing Fauci and all these idiots, all these idiots who got it wrong. He then goes on to say, every time he goes on television, referring, of course, to you, Dr. Fauci, there is always a bomb, but there's a bigger bomb if you fire him. This guy's a disaster. Fauci is a disaster. If I had listened to him, we'd have 500 thousand deaths. Later on, he expanded that to say maybe seven or eight hundred thousand deaths. There's a lot to unpack from that, doctor, but I want to give you an opportunity to respond to what the president of the United States said this morning, chiefly about you. You know, to be quite honest with you, I mean, I hadn't heard that in that detail until you just read it to me. But you know, I would prefer not to comment on that and to just get on with what we're really trying to do. And what we're trying to do is to protect the health and the welfare and the safety of the American people predominantly and ultimately of the world by taking a look at the challenge that we're facing now as we're seeing an uptick in cases uh, higher than they've ever been. Uh, many, many states that had been doing reasonably well are now showing upticks. That's what we should be concentrating on. All that other stuff is a distraction. And I would really prefer to stay away from that and maybe get the good public health measure that as we enter into most sections of the country, I mean, other sections have a more milder weather, but in many sections of the country, as we get into the cooler weather of the fall, and the colder weather of the winter, we're gonna be challenged because many things out of necessity are gonna have to be done indoors. And we've gotta get people to appreciate the importance of adhering to the simple public health measures of universal wearing of masks, keeping distances, six feet at least, avoiding congregate settings, crowds, particularly indoor, where possible, do things more outdoors than indoors and wash your hands because we can turn around these surges. We can't throw up our hands. And I'm not talking about shutting down the country. That's not what I'm talking about. Whenever I talk 
about public health measures, people sometimes interpret that as my being insensitive to the difficulties. All right, and, 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 but, but, and, and, and I promise you, Doctor, I, I really promised you. We will get there. <laughs> I, I've, I've, you know, I, I've talked to you as far back as the 80s on, on HIV, and I, I respect you as a scientist and as a doctor, and I get that you don't want to get embroiled in the politics of this. But, uh, and I also promise you, we will talk about all that other stuff that you just mentioned because you were right. That is what is important. That is what people need to know. Uh, but nonetheless, the President of the United States said some really powerful things coming from, I mean, he is, a, in, in some respects, your boss, right? Uh, you know, saying that if, it, if he had listened to you, there would be hundreds of thousands of more people dead, that people are tired of COVID. Do you think people are tired of COVID? Do you think hundreds of thousands more would have died had the president listened to you? Well, I do think one thing is important, that that in this country there is a fatigue of COVID. We've been dealing with this now for like almost nine months. And certain areas and segments of our society have had to either shut down completely or close down to the point of causing financial, economic, uh, jobs, hardships on people. So people are really fatigued with this. And that's something that we do have to deal with. And that's why I like and want to get the message across that this will end. We, we, will, we will put this behind us with a combination of a vaccine, which I, I, I truly believe, since I'm deeply involved in the development and the testing of vaccines, that by the end of this year, we likely will have a vaccine that's safe and effective, probably more than one vaccine, that will help greatly in alleviating some of the stresses that are put on us by the need to adhere to several of these uh, public health measures. Not that you ever want to give them up, but the vaccine would be very helpful. So there is truth in the fact that the many, many people in this country are fatigued with COVID-19. That's quite understandable. What do we do with the fatigue, though? How do you fight it if people don't want to listen or if he, the president, doesn't want to listen? I mean, I, I guess he technically can't fire you. Yeah, you know, I again, I, I don't want to get involved in that me against the president. That's not helpful because what that does is that creates a dialogue that distracts people from what the important things are. And the important things are being able to open the economy, get people back to work, but doing it in the context and in the setting of prudent, careful public health measures. And that's the message I keep drilling at, and I hope it gets through more and more, is that it, we're not is it talking about shutting down the country. We're talking about using public health measures as a vehicle or a gateway or a roadway. Right. But, when you, but, when you, but when you hear something like, like this, um, I, mean, I mean, be honest, do you ever just think, you know, I'm out of here. This is, <laughs> this is enough. I, I don't need this. Yeah. Well, you know, it depends if you take it personally. I focus totally on the health and the welfare of the people of this country. That's what I've devoted 50 years of my career towards, 36 of which were as the director of this institute. That's the only thing I really care about. That other stuff, you know, it's like in The Godfather, nothing personal, strictly business. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> you know, I just want to do my job 
and take care of the people of this country. That's all I want to do. So then when it comes to talking to the people of the country and telling them, do you get discouraged when the message just can't quite get all the way out there like you want it to? I mean, you're sitting there on the top of a hill yelling, masks work, like, really, trust me. And some people are looking at you and going, no, they don't. Well, but you shouldn't give up in trying. You shouldn't, because... You know, I, I think the message will get across as people start to see. And we, we are headed, if things don't turn around and change, as we get into the cool months of the fall and the cold months of the winter, that we may be headed into some really more serious issues than we've experienced. And we really want to avoid that. I mean, this is something that, that we can control. We can do it. And I think the concern is pitting one approach against another. In other words, it isn't all or none. And I think that's where the lesion was early on, that people interpreted either you shut down completely and cause economic distress, or you just let it rip and let everybody go out and get infected no matter what happens. It shouldn't be extremes. We can do important things, get the economy back, without necessarily, without necessarily at all, doing the kinds of things that you sometimes see on television. We don't need to be out there congregating and essentially inviting trouble. Let's talk about the future, uh, because I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about what a recovery from this pandemic is going to look like. I think some people think They're going to announce one day there's a vaccine. They'll go the next day to their doctor, get it. They'll rip off their masks, and there'll be this giant global hug fest. (laughs) That's not the way it's going to happen. Everyone downtown. Yeah. Unfortunately, that is not what's going to happen. But what will happen as more and more people feel comfortable in getting vaccinated, and we have safe and truly effective vaccines that are given to everyone literally as many people who want to get it, but particularly the vulnerable people, those who have underlying conditions that put them at a serious risk of getting a severe consequence of infection. Once we get uptake of the vaccine, that is quite effective. I mean, what is that going to be? I mean, I'd be happy with a 70, 75% effective vaccine. I'd love it if we had a 98% effective vaccine the way we have with measles, but that may be too much to ask for. But let's say we get a 75% effective vaccine. We really need to get a lot of people to take the vaccine. And even if they do, it's not gonna be like a light switch that you turn on and off. We still are gonna have to practice prudent and careful public health measures. That doesn't mean we're gonna be able to just hold back all the normal things we wanna do, but it will be a gradual re-entry into normality. It's not going to be overnight because you're not going to have 100% of the people protected for the simple reason that not everybody's going to want to get vaccinated right away. I think you're going to get more and more uptake of the vaccine as people realize that it is safe, number one, and it is having a positive impact on controlling this outbreak. When they see that, I believe more and more people would get vaccinated. And when that happens, there'll be less and less constraints on what we can do and getting us back to normal much, much sooner. Until we get there, what does winter look like? I mean, we're not where we need to be, right? Because the idea for summer was to get the caseloads down, the daily cases, as low as you could. So then when the inevitable rise came, we'd be rising from that spot. But we're not at a great place right now. 
You are correct. We're not. We're not because the fundamental baseline of daily infections is disturbingly high. You know, we never got below a baseline of 20,000. We're up to now anywhere between 55 and 70,000 on some days, depending upon how you're counting it and whether it's the weekend or not. In addition, we're seeing uptick in positivity of, of, of tests in a number of states, some of them which did not have a significant problem before. Those are two things when conflating together make for a very challenging situation as we enter the middle of the fall and the beginning of the winter. That's the reason why I get on and talk to, you know, on shows like this to tell people, don't be thinking about shutting down everything, but just thinking about prudent public health measures, avoiding high risk situations like congregating in indoor places without masks. That's asking for trouble. How much do you worry personally about you or your own family members getting COVID? You know, I'm an infectious disease person. I've been dealing with everything from HIV to Ebola to Zika to pandemic flu to the anthrax attack. So I don't think I can say I'm afraid. I mean, I think about it. I think obviously more about my family than I do about myself. But I mean, I'm in, given my age, I'm in a reasonably high risk group for a deleterious consequence. So I certainly want to be careful and not reckless in what I do in exposing myself because I am in a high risk group. If it's not COVID, what about people? I mean, 60 Minutes last night, you're under protection when you go right. out now. And so is your family because threats have been made. Right. Well, that's something that, you know, I worry less about myself than the harassment of my wife and my children, which, I mean, I have, you know, federal agents guarding me, but there are people out that continually harass my family, which I just find to be just such a, a, um, a shameful reflection of the divisiveness in our country, where you have someone who's trying to get a public health measure and public health messages across, and it's met with threats, not only on one's person, but upon one's family. Yeah, I, I mean, that, I, that's I, very weird. Yeah, I, I was going to say, because you've been doing this a really long time. As I said uh, a few minutes ago, I remember talking to you when you were doing HIV research. So that was decades ago, right? Uh, did you ever think, as an infectious disease expert, that you would have to deal with these sorts of issues? And, and why do you think it's happening now? Well, no, it had never entered my mind. I mean, back in the day of HIV and all the other things, there were differences of opinion, but there was never anything that even remotely resembled the kind of acrimony that we see now. And I think it's a reflection of the divisiveness in our society. Uh, there's no doubt you can't walk away from that. I mean, it's almost this way throughout the world, but very intensified right now in our country, I hope that we get through this and revert back to some degree of normality because this is not the way America should be. How do you start to, jumping off that, clear up this mistrust of science in general? I mean, do scientists need to be more vocal and not sit on the side? We've seen plenty of them get out there, especially on Twitter, online doctors pushing back against people who, who say that the guidelines aren't needed. No, I, I think that scientists, they do need to be more vocal, but they need to do it in a way that's not condescending to non-scientists. They need to do it in a way where they're understood. I always say when you communicate with the public, if you're a scientist, the goal is not to show how smart you are. The goal is to be understood.
so that people know what you're talking about without talking down to them, but without trying to confuse them with the razzle-dazzle that sometimes you hear some people do when they start talking about science. There are some crisp, simple messages that are public health messages that are based on solid science. We've got to have more people out there talking about that. You know, we had on our show last week uh, one, or maybe it was two, Mike, uh, of the uh, scientist doctors who signed that declaration saying, in effect, you know, we should be going for herd immunity, that we should let younger people basically roam wild, let them do what they want to normally do, protect uh, older folks, and then eventually countries will build up herd immunity and we'll all be fine. But that really isn't true, is it? No, it's not even close to being true, as a matter of fact, because if you look at the proportion of our society that is vulnerable to severe outcomes, the elderly, those with underlying conditions, there's an estimate that the third or more of the population, and that's a conservative estimate, some people say much, much more than that, have underlying conditions, some of which they don't even realize, that put them at a high risk. So if you want to let infection run wild in society, thinking that since young people generally don't have serious consequence, if you just so-called protect the vulnerable like those in nursing homes, well, there's only a very fraction, fraction, fraction of the population who are vulnerable that are in nursing homes. The rest of them are walking around the street. People who are obese, with diabetes, with heart disease, with chronic lung disease. How do you propose you're going to protect them if you let community spread explode in the community. Uh, it's not going to happen. So if you try to do it that way, you're going to wind up with a lot of dead people, people whose death could have been avoided. So, you know, uh, I'm not sure exactly what the argument on the other side is trying to make, but it doesn't make any health sense or any scientific sense. Doctor, before you go, because we know you got to run, you predicted this pandemic. This was your big fear years ago, respiratory virus like this one. So what's your worry about the next one. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's get through this sucker before we worry about the next one, okay? <laughs> good enough. It's good enough. All right, Dr. Fauci, thanks so much. Cases increasing across much of the U.S. again. It appears we are in for a winter surge as doctors concerned about hospitals being overrun, especially with flu season here. Not to mention if there are more cases, it could lead to more deaths. Dr. Alexander Phelan is a member of the Center for Global Health Science and Security, professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology at Georgetown University. So, doctor... There's a quote going around about the next six to 12 weeks being some of the darkest times we're going to experience with this. What are your thoughts on that? So I actually think we may even be looking a little bit longer. I think, you know, we're looking at the last the last two weeks, we've had a 30% increase in the cases here in the United States. And the fact that we're on that increase makes me really worried that it's actually going to take us quite a huge effort if we, if we have an effort to turn that ship around. And so I, I worry that it's going to actually be a darker, you know, 12 to 18 weeks ahead rather than 6 to 12. Now, of course, as you know, there are people out there who say, well, of course we have higher numbers of people infected because the country has gotten a lot better at testing, more people are getting testing, and so we're going to inevitably have more people testing positive for COVID. But that's not a very good argument, is it? 
So, I mean, obviously testing increases will, you know, will pick up cases that we didn't know we had, particularly people who are asymptomatic or, you know, may not be showing symptoms yet. But um, what we saw and what we've seen over the last few months is, you know, these increases in testing are then followed by, you know, in the you know, two weeks later, we start to see the increase in hospitalizations, and then we start to see the increase in, in deaths after that. So there are some little other indicators we use, such as, you know, percent positivity that sort of gives us an idea if, if it really is just an artifact of more testing. Um, but, you know, it is it is much more complex than just more testing means we're going to get more positives. You know, we are seeing more positives and more transmission within the community. So what about the other why, which is, you know, why would this happen if we are wearing masks and if we are mostly doing what we're supposed to? Some segments of the economy are still closed down. Is it just that there is inevitable spread indoors when people move indoors? Is this coupled with fatigue for some of those restrictions and not everybody playing along? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. I think the reality is, is here in the United States, we, we don't have everyone, you know, complying with, with the different measures and, and not everyone is necessarily able to comply with the different measures. Um, you know, we haven't seen governments around the country provide those supportive services to ensure that people can stay home. And um, we've seen, you know, most countries, I mean, California is still in a safer at home phase, but most of the states around the country are back into the new normal um, you know, the reality is, is we don't have the uptake of masks, of physical distancing, of hand washing, of ventilation, um, rapid testing, contact tracing, all these things that we know need to be being done at scale. Um, and the real challenge is, is when, you know, when winter comes, it's not as though that there's anything inherent about winter that makes this, that makes COVID worse, but it is how our behaviour changes. And I think you're absolutely right. One of the big factors as we go into winter is, is you know, people getting tired um, and people perhaps not being as vigilant as they were. Um, and, you know, this is, has been a long haul and it's very stressful. It's understandable, but it really is important that we come back to those basics and maintain things like masks, physical distancing, hand washing. Dr. Alexander Phelan, member of the Center for Global Health Science and Security, professor at Georgetown. Short break and then a big drugstore chain getting ready for the one-two punch of COVID and flu. CVS is filling more prescriptions now. It's looking to fill thousands of pharmacy jobs to deal with coronavirus and flu this winter. Bruce Japson, healthcare writer for Forbes, he talked with WBBM's Rob Hart about why this hiring surge is so important. CVS will be 15,000 uh, new hires that they want to make. About 10,000 of them are for pharmacy technicians, and they're hoping to get a federal waiver to allow not just the pharmacists to administer uh, the, the seasonal flu vaccine and eventually a COVID-19 uh, vaccine. And so they're definitely staffing up because, as we know, um, for those of you who have not gotten your seasonal flu shot, you'll want to do that because you want to protect yourself from one flu because they're worried that, obviously, when people have symptoms, they'll be, you know, they might think it's the seasonal flu or it could be COVID-19. You want to eliminate at least one of the possibilities if you have a chance. Meanwhile, um, we do have, uh, uh, hopefully, a uh, COVID-19 vaccine that looms on the horizon. We have uh, five in final stage clinical trials, and we know that Pfizer's uh, COVID-19 vaccine is the lead dog on, on that, and, and they could get an emergency authorization um, maybe by the end of November, by the end of the year, and then they will start to um, uh, allocate that. And, and CVS has uh, relationships with long-term care pharmacies, uh, they also have specialty pharmacies, and these are high-tech 
of flu vaccines that require to be uh, stored in 80 to below temperatures and such. So you need a lot of not just the typical pharmacists, but a lot of technicians and people to support what is going to be an unprecedented rollout of a vaccine, hopefully by the end of the year and certainly in the next year. And CVS wants to be a part of that. And with this, this, this does create the image in <laughs> one's mind of someone getting their COVID vaccine and then picking up like a, you know, a large bag of peanut butter cups uh, at the convenience store. But CVS also uh, operates a number of uh, storefront clinics, too, which would also be a distribution point. Um, hopefully we don't really know exactly how it's going to roll out, but you know, there are, these are, are these type of vaccines that are being worked on the COVID-19 vaccines, a little different in, in that fact that they're, um, more, I would say more biotech, more technology goes into them than your typical uh, seasonal flu vaccine, which, you know, rolls out every year to, uh, hundreds of millions of people around the world, but they definitely want to be prepared. And, and the bulk of these new hires are pharmacy technicians, you know, who will be uh, uh, available to people, you know, whether uh, how they're exactly going to distribute. And that's being discussed right now uh, with the federal government and so forth. But rest assured, they're staffing up because they want to be prepared because you have this whole collision going on right now uh, where people that we have COVID-19 spiking, we have seasonal flu spiking. They want to be prepared. They want to be able to get people to get their medications and, um, you know, prevent whatever they can prevent and be prepared. Okay, so we've seen the toilet paper fly off the shelves and then the hand sanitizer, the disinfectants. This we know. The sanitizers and wipes, they make sense, but we never figured out the whole toilet paper thing. We'll leave it alone for now. Other items that have been strangely popular lately, guns. A new study from UC Davis researchers found more people in California bought guns in the first five months of the year. Pandemic cited as a major factor in the purchase of about 110,000 new firearms in the states. This mirrors a nationwide spike. Earlier study by some of the same researchers found sales in the U.S. surged by 64% between March and May. The results, an additional 2.1 million firearms entering the homes of private citizens in the U.S. Thank you for listening. Do stay well. Find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Rate and review if you'd like.